Football on the Sports Social Podcast Network is brought to you by BetVictor. Don't like your odds? Enjoy daily bet boosts on your favourite sports and make your best bet now at betvictor.com. 18 plus, begambleaware.org. NFL Sunday Ticket is now on YouTube and YouTube TV, which means that it just got easier to be an NFL fan, even if you live far away. Like, maybe you like the Bears, but you're hibernating in Panthers territory. But with NFL Sunday Ticket, your out-of-market team is never more than a short distance away, specifically the distance from you to your remote control. NFL Sunday Ticket, now on YouTube and YouTube TV. Go to youtube.com slash presale to get $50 off. Terms and embargoes apply. Offer ends 919. No refund. Subscription auto renews. Welcome everybody to VAR at the Bar. Uh, we're on episode 16 now and uh, uh, my name is Chris. Who am I with today? I'm Ant. I'm Dan. How are you all? You okay? Yeah, very well, thanks. Looking forward to my Christmas break. Yeah, can't complain. So this is our last episode then before, uh, for the new, until the new year. So we've got to get our brains um, thinking of uh, any new subjects for the next episodes. But just on current affairs, what do you think about Oli Gunnar Solskjaer at Man United after in the Champions League and his stylish exit? Do you think he should still <laughs> be in the job or has time run out for him? Uh, I think he's got a bit of time. We need to see how the season pans out. I think if he can... Um... I mean, the Premier League's still wide open up for grabs. There's a lot of time left. He can still earn his spot at the club. Yeah, I mean, about two weeks ago, I thought to myself, he can't have long left. And then I actually looked at the table and thought, well, they win the game in hand. They're right back in it. That's right. But there's just no consistency, is there? You know, they, they lose at home nearly every week and then they come from behind every week away. And you can't keep doing that. Eventually, it's going to catch up on you. And I, I, I just... I think they're overly reliant on Bruno. What do you reckon, Chris? Yeah, I agree. I mean, they've got a big game this weekend, haven't they? The Manchester derby. It seems like Man City are just catching a little bit of form. It's going up the gear slightly. I think to sack him after Manchester derby is perhaps, a, if if they lose, it's probably a little bit harsh because it, it's a tough game. You know, if it was Sheffield United, then maybe fair enough. But <laughs> I, I don't see, I don't think he's quite, Heads on the chopping block quite yet. I just think he needs to find a bit of identity at Manchester United. I think get balance into his team as well, isn't it? You know, know what his strongest team is and have a seem to have got it tactically wrong, didn't he? First half against Leipzig, from what I heard, and he made some changes and they seem to almost get him out of the hole a bit. Yeah, I feel a bit sorry for him because I think he finished the season last year knowing what his best team was. And I think he was getting some good performances consistently. 
And then he, he started the same team this year and the players didn't perform for him for, for whatever reason, uh, especially in midfield with Pogba and Matic. They didn't step up to the plate at all this year and they've not been starting every game. I think the sooner think, they get rid of Pogba, the better. I'd have to agree now, yeah. I'd say just uh, going to the bottom of the table, Sheffield United, I mean, what, what would you do? I mean, are they going to get rid of the, the manager? I mean, he spent uh, quite a lot of money over the last couple of seasons. Is it just, it just seems to me that there's issues up front, major issues scoring goals and creating chances. And it just seems like teams seem to be catching on to his tactics of last year a little bit. Have you got anything else to add? Do you think they should look for a new manager or do you think they should stick with, with him in, in, for a bit longer? I'd like to say they should stick with him because of where he's, where he's got them to. But they've got a new foreign owner now, haven't they? So I'd imagine sentiment goes out the window, doesn't it, really? You know, if, if you sack, you know, he's clearly a, a good manager and he's Sheffield through and through. If you sack him, who do you bring in? One of the usual relegation suspects. I think you've hit the nail on the head, though, with the point about the owner. This is the problem. Um, if, he's, if he looks at it when the, the transfer window opens, he'll want to bring in a new manager give them licence to spend a lot of money to improve the team, I think. So I think you'll see that change at the end of December if it's going to be made at all. Right then, so the schedule for tonight's episode we've got is the good, the bad, obscure. That's myself, so we'll open with that. Then we've got the top 10 biggest declines in English club football. Um, and then we've actually got a bit of a first for us on the pod, and that's uh, an interview with the England gaffer, for walking football over 60s, and that's Stu Lamworthy. Uh, fully enjoyed it. I uh, hope you guys did as well. Uh, yeah, we it was interesting. Recording yeah. of it last week. Very informative. And then we'll finish off with our VAR at the bar quiz. And in between, we've got the fantasy leagues and socials. My guy, for the good, the bad, obscure, I'll give you a couple of clues. Okay. In Pro Evo, he had a power rating of 99 for his left foot shooting. He's never played in the Premier League. And like I say, his left foot has been compared to a juggernaut, magic rond, and a rocket launcher. Anyone wow. get it? Since I play Pro Evo a lot, no. Adriano? Correct. Uh, well, watch out. Well done. Okay, I'll just give you a bit of background for him. Uh, in his younger years, he played in played football bare feet in the streets of Villa Chirizo. He started his professional career at Flamengo at the age of 18. And in his first season, he scored 10 goals in 20 games. He then got snapped up by Inter Milan. Um, and then after a season there, he then moved um, to Parma. You know, with these Italian clubs, they did this whole co-ownership malarkey where they half-own a player. So, in this case, it was Inter and Parma that owned, co-owned him. Um, that was for £11 million. That He actually had a great partnership with Adrian Mutu. And in his first two seasons in Serie A, he got 32 goals in 53 games. Um, due to his success at Parma, he actually moved back to Inter. And they nicknamed him the Emperor. Internationally, he helped Brazil win the Copa America 
scoring at injury time equaliser in the Copa America final, which ultimately led to Brazil's victory. From that, he actually became a national hero and was touted to be the next Ronaldo. However, we all know, unfortunately, that didn't quite happen. Um, during this this time, which you could probably say it was his heyday, he won the, the actual competition's golden boot in that July. He won the Coppa Italia with Inter in May 2005. And again, he impressed with Brazil, um, steering his nation to Confederations Cup glory and with another golden boot in that competition. But his form produced nothing that the next 12 months could replicate due to, unfortunately, his tragic death of his dad, who died of a sudden heart attack. He was a massive part of, part of him going to football. He actually made this quote, if I can give you it. And he said, the death of my father left a huge void in me. I was alone, sad and depressed in Italy. And that's when I started drinking. I did not know how to hide it because I was drunk even at training. He said of the beer, wine, whiskey and vodka binges that took over his life. I was completely drunk. They took me to the infirmary to sleep and then told the press I had muscular problems. So there you go. If you ever hear a footballer that has muscular problems, so-calledly, then you know what's happened. Okay, guys? Like, like I said, the relationship with him and his father was an impreparable one. They were highly close. He was a major inspiration to his son. And Adriano said that earlier in his career that impressing his dad was his major motivation. Unfortunately, without that was a massive dip in form. Like I said, in 2006 World Cup, they expected a lot. They had the Magic Square, which featured Ronaldo, Kaka and Ronaldinho, but they only made it to the quarterfinals and um, the media were very harsh on him, saying he put on a bit of weight, a bit chunkier, that's what they said, than he was before. He, he then got dropped twice by Dunga on international duty for being caught partying in nightclubs. Then he was whacked on, on loan to Sao Paulo for the rest of the season. Um, scored twice on his debut, but then was sent off in the next game for headbutting a Santos fullback. Then fined by his club for arriving late to training and then getting in a, in, in a heated exchange with a photographer. Then he went to Flamengo, helped them get the first title in 17 years. And then his last hurrah was scoring the winning goal for Corinthians to win the title. He celebrated by vaulting over the advertising hoarding and clumsily removing his shirt to expose his less than trim figure. <laughs> he did actually have a stint in between with, with Roma, but that didn't work out. And then uh, some of the misdemeanors that he had uh, was whilst on a night out in Rio, he was in a nightclub in the early hours. He was accused by 20-year-old Adriana Pinto of accidentally shooting her hand whilst drunkenly playing with his body, bodyguard's gun. A few days later, she changed her story, saying it was her that pulled the trigger. And then finally, he was allegedly forced to pay members of the murderous Camarado Vermando, that's a red command gang, for protection. And he was um, caught in a picture in 2010 wielding an AK-47 submachine gun and flashing it at one of the CV's gang signs. 
they've, they've always said that there were errors in judgment, and he's still amazingly only 38 years old now. So he's only a year younger than Zatanna Bohimovic. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the colourful career of Mr. Adriano. <laughs> Very colourful. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was a good one to put in. I was. He's a very interesting character, isn't he? Yeah, I'm glad you did. I hadn't been following his career too closely, if I'm honest. So it was really good to find out what actually happened to him. I'd actually yeah. completely, completely forgotten about him. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's a really good one to put the spotlight on, Chris. Enjoyed that. Right then. So the next thing we're going to go on to is the top ten biggest declines in English club football. Um, this wasn't my baby. <laughs> Disowning <laughs> it. I'm disowning it. Um, to be honest, my idea was a lot worse, so I'm quite happy that Ant took, took charge with this. And well, I didn't say, come up with this. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> with every top ten, the question we ask each other, isn't it? What did we think? How hard was it? Considering I came up with the idea, I found it really hard. <laughs> we tried to research it first. Yeah. Yeah, I've come up with so many, and there's there's not much between them all. So it was so hard to pick a top ten. Yeah, that's that's what and I then found. In order. Yeah, I mean to be honest, and it's a great, um, so it's actually a great topic to pick because we'll probably get variations of what people think of declines. Yeah, as well. Uh, and I think that's what will make it quite interesting. I would assume that we'll probably have, as per usual, near enough the top maybe two or three. But you never know. This could be the one top first top ten that we don't. You know, just have to wait and see. Okay, let's start off with then uh, number ten, and I'll go to Dan first, please. All right, my number ten. I've gone for Bristol City. Okay. Okay. Um, back in the late seventies, they actually had four seasons in the top flight. And then they actually suffered three consecutive relegations in 1980, 1981, and 1982. So they went from the top flight straight down. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> that's, uh, <laughs> you know what? I, obviously, I wouldn't have remembered that because I wasn't born then. But well, that's, no, nor was I. <laughs> it's, it's, that is a pretty uh, momentous feat, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So um, yeah, they're gonna, and they haven't been back. They haven't been back in the top flight. Yeah, yeah division one to division four. They couldn't have got there any faster if they wanted to. No, no, that's a good good start. <laughs> uh, I'll go with mine then, if that's okay. Um, I've gone with Oldham Athletic. Oh yeah, I don't know whether that one's on your list at all. No. Okay, so I put them in because I just was thinking about, you know, the way I, I looked at it was on Premier League status. So were they there at the beginning? Where are they now? And so forth. Um, and they were one of the founder members of, of the Premier League in 1992. Um, they got relegated two years later and then fell further back in 1997. Um, the club ended their 21-season long stay in the third year, which had numerous financial crises. With relegation out of Divi- out of League One in 2018, um, they were 
rescued from possible liquidation in 2004-2005. And then um, Oldham then brought in um, a new chairman that was uh, a Moroccan former football agent called Abdullah Lemzagan. Okay, so that's back in January of 2018. Um, but unfortunately, the club's decline still continued with this guy. It doesn't seem like he's probably the most qualified. He was the actual uh, guy who bought in Paul Scholes for his monumental 31-day um, tenure, tenure there. <laughs> um, he, Paul Scholes left saying that um, the, the owner just didn't let him get just kept on getting involved in first team affairs. Um, and he actually still had, here's a fact, that he still had his 10% uh, ownership share at Salford as well. I don't know how that would have ended up. But anyway, <laughs> there we go. Um, and just finally, really, uh, on this is that they have 13 managers in the last five years. I mean, that is just unbelievable. At the moment, they're obviously in the lower... In, in Division Two, so I think maybe having that much of a uh, manager change is, hasn't really helped the issue. So that's why Oldham are my number ten. Enough. Okay, I then. Yeah, they were in the Premiership. To be honest, at one point, they were there at the beginning. Yeah, uh, yeah, a long time ago. I don't think they were. I, I'll be honest with you. I don't think they'll ever get back up there. <laughs> but no. I seem to remember on, on a previous pod that I found out that they'd. Scored something like sixty odd goals in one season, still yeah. got relegated. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that's it. Right then, Nan. What's your number ten, mate? I've gone with Coventry City. Oh, I've put them a bit higher. Okay, fair enough. Number four, um, actually. Oh, eight. okay. Wow. <laughs> they Same need to do like this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my number four as well. But keep on trucking. So, what have you got for Cough then? And um, so I've I've got that sort of as sort of, obviously they won the FA Cup in 1987, um, denied European football because of some uh, team in red decided to get involved in another disaster, um, and then they they sort of became a mainstay in the Premiership, sort of top flight rather, um, sort of early 90s. Didn't really do much to challenge top six, but constantly. We're never really in danger to start with. And the start of the Premiership era, they had this habit of starting fast and then slowly fading a little bit throughout the season. Um, they had sort of the uh, Nilavu and Dublin partnership. Coventry finished 11th that season. And they then had a few years of final day escapes, but then they, they began to settle again, thanks to Darren Huckabee. And they had these big plans of a new stadium and it was all planned for 2002 season. Um, however, they then got relegated in 2001 after 34 years in top flight. Uh, moved into the new stadium, the Rico Arena. They then got relegated to League One. Um, and then sort of financial issues and all sorts. They then had to find a new home, uh, which was a temporary ground share with Northampton. And then they narrowly avoided a winding up order. And they've dropped into League Two. And that's that's obviously the lowest they've got. And they are slowly making their way back up now, but... It was a, a massive fall from grace from a, what I've always considered a sort of a, a well-established top-flight team. Yeah, yeah. well, you said it, 34 years in the top flight. Probably get more established than that. 
I think it all started with the stadium, though, wasn't it? Rico Stadium. It's a if you don't know Coventry, it's they've moved it out of the main centre, haven't they? City centre. Don't think it it pleased too many fans. But amazingly, they got promoted last season, didn't they? Sharing a, a stadium with uh, Birmingham. Yeah, at least that's a bit closer than Northampton. And they met each other in the FA Cup <laughs> last season as well. It was a fascinating fact. Um, I just love that um, it's like the footballing equivalent of going into a casino and walking out naked. The fact that you 34 years in the top flight, and now you look at them where they're in League Two and they've lost the ground, <laughs> they've lost the home. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's very messy there, isn't it? You know, the wasps have bought part of it, I think, and all sorts of owners. Oh, they're the new runners. Yeah. Maybe it should have been higher on my list, but I don't know. I, I kept them at number 10. Like I said, they, they nearly didn't even make my list. So, oh. you know, fair play for you guys putting them higher. No, no, I mean, you know, like I said, it's everyone's opinion of a decline. I just hope your other nine are going to be tip top. Oh, you know, as, as I said at the start, this is like a, <laughs> it's like a 0.01% difference between all of them. Yeah. <laughs> Fine margins. No, fair enough. I think there's a same of all our lists. <laughs> okay, then, uh, Dan, what's your number nine, mate? Well, I think I'm going to do it out now, then. Uh, my number nine is Bolton. I'm going home. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I'm that's my number Bolton three. at uh, four. Oh, okay. Yeah, no. I'm really surprised that you guys have got it higher, to be honest. Um, so I'll just tell you what I've got on Bolton. Um, they were in the Premier League between 2001 and 2012. And during that time, they had at one stage four consecutive top half finishes. So they were very well established in the league. They reached the last 32 of the UEFA Cup in the 2005-2006 season. And then the last 16 of the UEFA Cup in the or sorry, the Europa League, as it was then, in the 2007-2008 season. Uh, they were relegated in 2016, uh, but bounced back into the Premiership. But then they suffered back-to-back relegations recently in 2019-2020. Uh, financial turmoil, they were in danger of being wound up, and um, you can't see them getting out of League 2 anytime soon. Best uh, things changed. It's been a rapid fall from grace. And from stability, you'd say at one stage. Yeah, no, I mean, just, I mean, my first note I've got on here is 13 years ago, Bolton played Munich, drew Tool in the UEFA Cup. Now they're away at Harrogate in Division Two. I mean, it's mad, isn't it? Absolute madness. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's not really, you could say, the players' fault with it, is it? It's more, I think, how the running of the club's been and how they dealt with the relegation to the championship and things that I think well, outside. I mean, Sam Allardyce left because he sort of wanted more finances to push him yeah. into the Champions League and um, which after finishing sixth, you can't blame him really for asking. I mean, it's on everyone's top 10 and it's yeah. it's been a pretty ep- epic um, decline, hasn't it, really? <laughs> Yeah, the only thing I'll, I'll say in justifying why I've got them lower than you guys is um, the view I the view I've taken is that um, I've got Coventry at number four because they they won a cup um, and Bolton 
they didn't win that. They didn't win a trophy the same way. So that not fell from such a great height is the way I've sort of quantified it. I kind of followed that same process. I don't know why Coventry ended up number 10. <laughs> I think it's just sort of Bolton got to European football and perhaps finished slightly higher. Uh, yeah. Coventry, so. <laughs> That's fair enough, mate. That's fair enough. We're, we're getting there in, at this sort of different point, but we're all going to be there at the end. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, my number nine is Luton Town. Snap. I've got the number eight. Oh, okay. Great. I mean, uh, I'll just quickly go through my bit and then if you guys want to add anything else. So, they're, they're probably most well-known or the last... Co- the, the, they won was in a 1987 88, the 3-2 victory over Arsenal in the League Cup final. That again, similar to what Ant said with Coventry, that would have given them European football, but those damn Liverpool fans decided it wasn't to be. Um, so they lost their no doubt a bit of money with that. Um, they were relegated from the old, uh, I think it was the Premier League in 92. Am I right with that? Or did they just miss out on the... 91, 92. They got relegated the year it swapped over. Yeah. So, um, obviously by then they were in in sort of the lower leagues. And then I got here that um, the chairman at the time, this is now going to 2003, Mike Watson Chalice sold the club to a guy called John Gurney, who then at the time sacked um, some people we might know, Joe Kinnear and Mick Harford. <laughs> uh, but then what happened was he then did an infamous manager idol video vote, an attempt to merge Luton and Wimbledon, and then have plans to merge as one to a 50,000 um, capacity stadium built on the rafters over the M1. Um, obviously, that never went, went ahead. <laughs> mm. uh, but I thought that was an interesting fact. Uh, and then, uh, then they had their drop down the leads between 2007 and nine. Again, financial difficulties caused the club to fall from the second tier of football to the fifth in successive seasons. Yeah. Um, which is like what... what what Dan said with Bristol City is pretty epic proportions, massive points deductions, especially the 30-point one for various um, financial irregularities in 2008-9. It took them a while um, to get out of the National League, but they seem to be on, on the rise slowly now. I think they're back in the Championship now, which is good to see, but it's, it, it took a massive decline, didn't they? Anything else for you guys to add, or you? Uh, the only thing I to add is um, you mentioned they were relegated from the top flight, but they're actually in the top flight between eighty-two and ninety-two. That's ten years in the top flight, so they were uh, they were quite consistent and stable in the top flight. It's where I got their starting points until, like you say, they dropped into the conference eventually. <laughs> the, the only thing I had was just a, a sort of stat. Really, was that they were one of the only teams back in the. Um, I don't know, sixties or seventies, eighties um, maybe. That fielded mostly black players. They were the first teams to 
actually just have a team full, full of predominantly yeah. black players, players like Ricky Hill and uh, Brian Stein. Wow, okay. Uh, bit of trivia for you. Mm. There we go. Add that onto my quiz later. <laughs> I'll probably get it wrong. <laughs> um, so that was your number nine as well, was it, Ant? Uh, yes. And that, that was your number eight? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, right, so you're going to hear my Dorset tones again. Oh, I'll do it God. Learning it. Um, Right then, next one I've got is Sheffield Wednesday. On your list at all? No, didn't make the cut. I had a long think about them though, but no, I didn't put them in the end. It's a very tight one, to be honest. Like we said, it it could be any a list of 10 or 12 minimum, couldn't it? (laughs) We could put on this. But yeah, so I put Sheffield Wednesday in. Um, They're in the Premier League for eight years and they're part part of the the first season of the Premier League that the Premier League existed. They actually had a run in the UEFA Cup as well in that first season. Uh, I think they got to the second round. Um, they had, obviously, your players like Mark Bright, David Hurst, Paolo Di Cagno, before he pushed the referee. Um, and then, eventually, they got relegated in 1999-2000. Included in that was an 8-0 defeat at Newcastle. I think massive issues, I think, with the way the club was run. Um, for example, at the time, they gave Wim Yonk a £5,000 per game appearance fee money. And those times, that was a hell of a lot of money. And a lot of the times, he was unfit to appear. <laughs> <laughs> um, so they, they spent large sums of money building squads that were ultimately not particularly great. The club's Finances just took a turn for the worst. And in 2003, they were relegated for the second time in four years to second division. Um, yeah, so between July and November 2010, they faced um, a series of winding up orders um, and were under severe threat under the capable uh, chairman of Milan Mandaric, which Dan will know very well, having been ex Leicester chairman. Yeah, um, they actually in, the, in over that period um, from that uh, had twelve managers, which I thought was actually quite surprising. So they're quite um, they didn't really change managers that much. Um, they changed ownership, followed by two playoff appearances in two thousand fifteen and sixteen um, for the championship. But if you look at the size of the club of the stadium, you know, you've got a, a big stadium there, holds over 30,000. And for them to be in the championship for this length of time, you think, really, it's just, you know, it's a sort of a sleeping giant, really, I think. And I just think, again, badly, bad mismanagement has created this massive issue. And as we see in this season, they've had a six-point deduction, haven't they, placed on them and they're in a bit of peril again. It's more than that, wasn't it? Yeah, it's 12, I think. Yeah, I think 12. It's in half now. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's my number eight. I totally agree. They're, they're a big club and they shouldn't be down there. It's taking their time to get themselves even to, to be close to getting back into into sort of the Premier League. Yeah, they're a long way off. Yeah. Right then, 
And what do you reckon for your number eight then? I've gone with Sunderland. Oh, okay. As someone has. Yeah. <laughs> um, I've, I've gone with Sunderland because they, they, they're a massive club, a massive following. They're basically, all that the city of Sunderland actually have now. Um, historically, they've won six top flight titles, two FA Cups. Um, and in 1957, they were involved in a financial scandal. Their chairman and three directors were suspended. Um, following season, they were relegated from the top flight for the first time in their 68-year history. And then they had a few more ups and downs over the years. They beat Don Reeves' Leeds in uh, 1973 in the FA Cup. And they were a second division club at the time. Um, and they had their first taste of European glory. Um, but by 1987, they were in third division for the first time. But they had a new chairman, new manager, and they were back in the top flight in 1990, uh, thanks in part to Swindon's promotion being revoked due to financial irregularities. Uh, 92, they had another FA Cup outing. Uh, they lost to Liverpool. Um, then 95, they were back to the doldrums again, but Peter Reid took over. Um, and sort of a few more years of ups and downs, but 97, they left Roker Park, their home of 99 years, moved into a 42,000 capacity stadium, stadium for light, uh, the biggest stadium to be built after World War II at the time. Um, and they sort of got back into the top line 99 with the era of Kevin Phillips and Niall Quinn. And they looked like they were going to become mainstays up there. They finished seventh two years in a row, banging goals left, right and centre. And then um, Ellis Short and his consortium rocked up, and you know they they bought some bought some big players. Darren Bent being one of them, but then they also sold him, and they also then sold Jordan Henderson and failed to invest the money wisely. And they've dropped twice now, um, changing managers every five minutes, and they're now in League One, and they don't look very threatening in League One really, and they've got the ninth biggest stadium in the country. And it's, 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 it's a shame. It's a shame because, like I said, they they are a massive club. They don't deserve to be where they are. It's like Sheffield Wednesday. They I don't deserve can, to be where they are. I think you can safely call um, anyone that takes charge of that. I think they've literally just lost their manager and someone else has come in. It's a poison chalice, isn't it? Who would really want to touch that club, especially with the documentary as well <laughs> that's gone out? Yeah, and that's um, that's yeah, that, that's Yeah. As much as it's probably done more bad, <laughs> really, than good for them, <laughs> in the nicest possible. Form. But it's like, even in even in that documentary, you know, they had uh, what was it? The, the new man, uh, new chairman, Stuart Donald. Yes, that was him. Yeah. Everyone selling him, don't spend four million on Will Grigg or whatever his name was. That was great. Yeah. I'm going to spend it. And it's like well, he's not exactly set the world alight at Sunderland, does he? It's fringeworthy, isn't it, as well? Because people are going, you know, don't pay. They, they, they're putting you over a barrel. This is Wigan as well. Wigan. And look at them now. And the... <laughs> You know, they, they paid ridiculous amounts of money to get Jack Rodwell, and he, he just completely robbed them blind. Yeah. No, totally. Yeah. I'm happy you put, put it on the list, to be honest. I, I thought about it, but I thought a tactical... I knew someone on this pod was going to do it. So they're like one of my second teams. So I had to mention them. Yes. I grew up watching a lot of Sunderland. Fair enough. No, even the beach ball goal. Yeah, we don't talk about the beach ball goal. <laughs>
Right then, Dan, uh, your seven, please. All right, well, number seven, I've gone for Portsmouth. Ooh, my number one. <laughs> God, okay. Have you included the man? No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> they, 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 were, they were down for a special mention. Oh, fair enough. But yeah, number one, Chris. I know, I know, mate. You know, you know, mate. Is it not worth saving it until we get to number one? Because some, some weeks we never actually have a number one, do we? Okay, we, we'll, we'll save it then. Go on then. We'll save it then, if that's okay, Dan. Yeah, we'll okay. save it for later. No worries. Um, we're, going to, we're going to my number seven then. Um, and I doubt that you guys will have this. But I'll, I'll be surprised if you do. That's Bradford City. No. No. They went off my list uh, quite late on in the week. Oh, they not quite made the cut. Okay, cool. Um, obviously, Bradford were, were in the Premier League for two seasons. They got promoted back in 1998-1999. And it was a quite a wild couple of seasons that they had in the Premier League. Um, most notably... Um, one of the Sky Sports pundits, Rodney Marsh, uh, the ex-QPR, I think he was a striker, he actually said that um, if Bradford um, didn't get relegated, he would shave his hair off. And they didn't get relegated, so he ended up being bold for, for a while. He was that confident that they would get relegated. Uh They've had a bit. They had a bit of a wild time whilst in the Premier League, uh, especially their efforts to buy Benito Carboni, which they did get. He's on forty grand a week wow. um, at the time, which was more than David Beckham, and the owner threw in a seven-bedroom mansion as well. Uh, they also added on um, a couple of players that you might know, Dan Petrescu, ex-Chelsea, and David Hopkin of Leeds at the time. And we all know that Leeds were probably at the same time going on a bit of a spending spree themselves with a certain Seth Johnson <laughs> probably going. <laughs> um, and he, Anyway, David Hopkin moved for £2.5 million. Um, they brought in an interesting manager called Chris Hutchins, which was a relatively unknown manager at that level at the time. Uh, unfortunately, their second season didn't go as well as the first, and they got relegated. Uh, that left a lot of debts, about £35 million worth. And the administrators tried to sack five players illegally during that time. <laughs> Um, which didn't work. <laughs> um, and they, they asked uh, Carboni whether he could try and find another club because, he, because of his wages at the time. And he agreed to wavering three, three million pounds out of his contract. But still, even with that, the club went into administration. And two years later, the club suffered a second spell of administration, a second relegation. And then the club were relegated for a third time in seven seasons in 2006-7, meaning the following season they would be in the in the first tier, first in the bottom tier for 26 seasons. Uh, in in 2012-13, they won promotion to Div- Division One, 
but were relegated back in to Division Two in 2018-19. They've had at this moment in time, as we're speaking, they're on their sixth manager in the last four years. And amazingly, Stuart McCall has been in charge of them four times. Um, three times as full-time manager, which he is at the moment, and one time as caretaker. I just find it quite fascinating that somebody would spend stupidly um, that much money on players um, and gone big and it's just gone drastically wrong and they just can't can't seem to catch up. I mean, Valley Parade, I don't think it's the biggest stadium in the world. And obviously they did possibly say, you could say, um, sort of overachieved to get into the Premier League. But to be now where they are in Division 2 is pretty... Uh, Pretty epic, I think. Yeah, I actually didn't even consider Bradford, to be honest. Um, didn't find anything on them. No, no. no anything yeah. I for, so it's a good one. Yeah, yeah, it's a good one. Right then, um, you're number seven, please, Anne, if that's okay. I'll imagine this is a lot higher on some of your lists. I've gone with Wimbledon. No, I purely <laughs> didn't touch it. <laughs> <laughs> I put them at number five. Matt, Matt's not on this anymore, Chris. You can talk about Wimbledon all you like. <laughs> Go on then. Let's hear. Let's hear it. So they they came up from uh, non-league and they joined the top flight in eighty six, eighty seven, and they finished sixth. Uh, Dave Bassett left the club for Watford, and his successor Bobby Gore led them to the FA Cup in nineteen eighty eight. We have to mention that again. <laughs> Everything all comes up to FA Cup finals, isn't it? Um, again, they couldn't compete in Europe due to Heidel. Um, a 12th and 8th place finished, but Gould was replaced by Luton's Ray Harford, and they finished 7th. And then there was lots of talks of a new stadium, um, and eventually they settled on a ground share with Crystal Palace to meet with Premiership regulations. Um, Harford resigned suddenly, and interim boss... Oh, they had a... They had a they had another manager, I can't remember what his name was. But then um, Joe Kinnear took over uh, temporarily to start with and then he then he, he got the job and they carried on some decent finishes. In 1995, they finished ninth and they were invited to the Intertoto Cup. Um, but after fielding a bunch of reserves and trialists, they were banned from the competition the following year. Not that it would have mattered because they didn't qualify. Um, their last highest position was eighth in 1997. And in 2001 they announced that they wanted to relocate to Milton Keynes, a move that did not go down well with the fans. Uh, a new club was formed, AFC Wimbledon, and lots of the fans switched allegiance. And the original Wimbledon played their last game at Sellers Park in 03, uh, and then they entered administration. And by the end of 03-04, they were bought out of administration and renamed as MK Dons. And they've been down as far as League 2, I believe, and I think where they're now, League One. Yeah, 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 and yeah. Again, they're another team, in League One, that's got a massive stadium and no one to fill it. Yeah, so, um, yeah. Dan, one thing to add? Uh, no, you've, you've covered it all really well. Uh, the, only, the only thing I is, I is the way that I looked at it is that there's quite a lot of fans who. They've went from enjoying that uh, running the top flight for, what was it, 15, 16 years, and winning the FA Cup. They've gone from that high to 
supported AFC Wimbledon at the bottom of the football pyramid. Yeah. <laughs> For those fans, how big a decline is that? That's true, yeah. I didn't think of it like that. That's true. Yeah, true. It's just... You've got to pop... Got to sort of pop your hat off to AFC Wimbledon for going through all the divisions to get back up there as well. To be honest, yeah, yeah, that's a that's a club born out of passion and love for football. Yeah, am I right in saying that they're now back at Plough Lane as well? Yeah, yeah, thought yeah. so. Uh, who back actually is it? Is it MK Dons is officially the FA the former FA Cup holders now? If you like, or is it just they've left um, it at? Wimbledon, and then no one has it now. From what I've been told, I think they've had to sacrifice the cup to AFC fans or the AFC banner for that. So, again, if anyone knows that listens to the show about this, please can can you correct us on any of these information? Because we'd love to know. Right then, what's your number? Are we on to number six for you, Dan? Yes. Okay, so this is this is the one where I'm I'm thinking this might not be on your list. I've gone for Blackburn Olympic. Okay, no, I've got that one. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. So Blackburn Olympic, they won the FA Cup. In 1883, and they were the first team from the north of England to lift the trophy. Now, at this time, uh, football in England was not professional, and the football league did not exist. It was not until 1885 that uh, professionalism of football was legalised, so clubs could pay players legally. And the rules that were enforced in bringing that league into formation were that only one club per city or town, were allowed to be represented. Now, Blackburn Rovers were already in existence, and they drew larger crowds, and they could pay more wages. So Blackburn Olympic were not allowed to compete in the, in the league. So and they were sort of left out in the cold uh, due to these rules when the league was formed in 1888. So what happened was that uh, there were a few teams that were in a similar situation, Blackburn Olympic, and they joined something called the Combination, which was an alternative football league, basically. But it was uh, it was badly organised, and they couldn't bring in any crowds. So what happened was that uh, Blackburn Olympic they quickly uh, drew up debts, and they actually went into administration and wound up by 1889. So, like I said, the, the football league didn't exist back in 1883 when they lifted the FA Cup. So at that time. If you win the FA Cup in England, you're the best team in England. So being the best team in England in 1883 to being wound up in 1889. Why is that not your number one? (laughs) I thought there was going to be some sort of distraction tactic, like a politician there, uh, Dan, would go, oh, no, no, I'm not in charge. Pass over to Chris for the next one. I told you, Chris, didn't I, Dan was going to pluck someone from absolute obscurity. I'll be honest with you, I didn't even expect him to go into the 1800s. Oh, I didn't. <laughs> I think that's the 1920s. <laughs> I was expecting at least 1940s, 50s, you know, maybe past the Second World War, not before <laughs> even the Firefly War. But you know what? I don't expect anything now. It's well done. I'll pop my cap off to you. Um, <laughs> or in the 1900s, the cane and the cap. 
Top hat. Right then, we'll go back to 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 the twenty first century, and we'll go with my one, uh, Trambeer Rovers. <laughs> Snap! <laughs> Yay! Uh, you, you got that one there, Dan? Or I'll be honest, I didn't even consider them. No. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. Um, yeah, as per usual, and I'll do my little bit, and you just uh, add any additions on. Um, back in uh, 1987, um, it was bought by by a guy called Peter Johnson. He had the opportunity to buy Everton, but was as obsessed with getting Tranmere into the Premier League um, at the time. It was eventually sold by him in 2014. Um, but uh, if we go between the three seasons of 92 and 95, uh, John Aldridge was there as, play- as a player and player manager. They, they got to the playoff semi-finals three on each occasion. And then 2000-2001 uh, season, relegated to the, to the old Division One, which is now a championship. Aldridge left um, before the relegation and they spent 10 years in that, that division. Um, they did make it to the playoff semi-finals again, thanks to Ian Hume in 2004-05. Um, then I've got here on 2008 and/9, Ronnie Moore, at the time he was manager, was within two minutes of a playoff place, um, but lost the game in a do-or-die match against Scunthorpe. His reward for this was. He got sacked. And you want to know the reason? Because of failing attendances. <laughs> I've never heard. How's a manager meant to deal with that? I think somebody was trying to get rid of a high earner, in my opinion. Uh, 2012 and 13, they were top of League One. Um, as a calendar flipped, there's a massive collapse and they eventually finished 11th. Uh, Ronnie Moore was then reinstated as manager again. And in 2013-14, he admitted to breaking the FA's betting rules and was sacked by Trambeer. Following this, their uh, defender, who's been there for a long time, Ian Goodison, was also arrested as part of a max-fixing investigation. He was then cleared... But a, fake, but a former player, Dalroy Facey, was jailed as part of the probe, while Apo Sadibi um, was questioned amid various fraud allegations. So between that point and May 2015, they managed to get from top of League One to non-league football. Uh, three years were then followed where they were in non-league football. They then got promoted back into the, the Professional Football League. Um, and then they got promoted and then they got relegated last year from, uh, obviously, because of the average points scored. And at the moment, they're, I think, sitting in Division 2. Anything else to add there, Ant? Um, yeah, the only thing I had was, uh, you know, like you said, like you touched on that, they were pushing to get in the Premier League and they mm. were not far away from doing it, but I think the problem was they didn't, um, they didn't sort of keep up with the times, you know, other clubs rented out the stadium and, you know, corporate packages and 
events and all this. And Tramway did nothing; didn't even paint the stadium, apparently. Yeah, yeah, I read read that. But... Um, and then obviously when when you said that when Ronnie Moore was sacked for failing attendances, um, we all know who who replaced him, John Barnes. <laughs> yeah. Week. Um, but also at, at that time, which I didn't realise, was that Peter Johnson instructed a US firm, Bornock Capital, to broker the sale of the club because he'd had enough. And it ended up on eBay for £10 million. <laughs> Apparently, Johnson knew nothing of this eBay stuff, so it, it got removed quite swiftly. It's, it's mad, though, isn't it? I mean, it's his obsession to obviously get another Merseyside team into the prep top tier, which, fair enough, brilliant. But like you said, um, you've got to move with the times. Obviously, doing things like that, they're quite a small club, small-ish club anyway. But they were obviously doing really well in in the old championship to get to that many playoff finals. They obviously had the right players, but they just didn't move move with it and get get with the times. I say ninety four years though in football league until they got relegated to the conference. Yeah, and once you go down there, it's, it's tough to get back up. Yeah. Uh, so you that was your number six as well, was it? Oh, brilliant. Number five there, uh, Dan? My number five was Wimbledon. Oh, OK. OK, my number five is Notts County. Anyone's? Special mention for me. Oh, I forgot about them. Yeah. Again, it's a similar type thing, really, to, to where Tra- Trambeer were and also Luton. Um, they were relegated from the Premier League just the year before the Premier League formed. Uh, in 94-95, got relegated again to the old Division 2. Uh, just uh, then, um, they collapsed into administration in June 2002 and was a record of administration time of 534 days. So nearly a year and a half in administration. <laughs> um so we're now in September 2003. Uh, they face the real possibility of, uh, uh, of basically going um, extinct, crippling debts, and uh, the football board combine the league um, to put the, the club in doubt. Um, but they managed to somehow save themselves. Um, basically, um, in two thousand, we're going now to two thousand nine and ten. A guy called Russell King, chairman, took over at Notts County and suddenly had a lot of money. So they bought a certain Sven Goran Eriksson as director of football for the club and bought in players um, of Sol Campbell, Casper Schmeichel when he was at Leeds, and. Obviously, at that time, um, he passed the first sort of stages of tests. But with the with the high spending, they wanted to double check, and um, they found out that this guy was a, a massive convicted fraudster. So um, that suddenly went a little bit pear shaped, to say the least. I still think they they got promoted that time that um, that season as well. Um, but we're just now moving to uh, now January 2017. Uh, guy, a local guy called Alan Hardy completed the takeover. 
um, in uh, January the 27th, uh, 2019. They were bottom of League, League Two. Um, he put he actually put the club up for sale, um, but unfortunately he uh, brought the attention of the FA for accidentally including a picture of his penis on a <laughs> screenshot post on Twitter. I didn't think you were going to go there, Chris. I went there. Uh, <laughs> I don't think it's meant to have gone there, but anyway, uh, I think that. Obviously, they got relegated into the non-league for the first ever time. But obviously, it's quite high on controversy because Macclesfield, if I'm right, had um, were in similar financial difficulties under Sol Campbell. But they managed to stay in the league, but then they got thrown out of the league at the beginning of last season. So I think they were looking at some sort of court action on that, but it wasn't going to happen. Um, at the moment, they're still in, in the National League. But again, you've got there a, a, a biggish club, you know, holds 20-odd thousand people and they're in, you know, in the National League. It's just bad mismanagement, you know, along, along everywhere, isn't it, with that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, they were in the top flight in the early 90s, weren't they? Not counting. They were, yeah. They got relegated the season before the Premier League. And then I think Start. it was after they were, they were relegated and they're in the second tier. They actually won the old Anglo-Italian Cup, didn't they? Yeah, yeah, they did, yeah. They had some good players there. They had Mark Draper, I think, played for them. and They're, they're very handy, but obviously, like, like Ant said, similar to Trambier, I just think it's just it's money and probably just stubbornness an ego not to follow with other clubs in the times. I mean, Juventus modelled their kits on them. They did. <laughs> that as well. Yeah. They also won the FA Cup. There we go. You see, that's substantiated my pick for number five for and you guys didn't pick him. Your, what's your number five then? And I've gone with the Wolverhampton Wanderers. Okay. Yeah, I've, I've put them in at number three. Okay. Um, so they were one of the founding members of the Football League in 1888. Um, they spent 26 consecutive seasons in the top flight between 1932 and 1965. Uh, English League champions three times. Um, and they've also finished English League runners-up five times. Uh, they've won the FA Cup four times. And they finished runners up again another four times, um, and they finished top of all four divisions in in the English professional game. Um, they became one of the first British clubs to install floodlights, and arranged for floodlit friendlies against leading overseas sides uh, between 1953 and 1956, which was instrumental in the launch of the European Cup. Um, they reached the quarterfinals of that competition in 1959, uh, as well as the semi-finals in 1960 uh, of the 1960 European Cup Winners' Cup. Um, finished sixth in the first division, winning the Football League Cup in 1980, and then they dropped down to the fourth division in 1986 on the back of three consecutive relegations. Uh, the decline of them was widely seen as a culmination of decades of financial mismanagement rather than a, an extreme sh- sort of short-term spending. 
Um, they paid a record fee of 1.5 million to sign Andy Gray from Aston Villa in 1979, uh, and spent an even greater sum of money trying to rebuild the stadium to create a large all-seater stand at the same time. And they just sort of ran out of money, like with all these clubs, they spend big to go big and don't quite get there. That's all I had. Well, well you got a lot there. Yeah, you covered it all. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, I think, did you mention they were in the uh, 1972 UEFA Cup final? Uh, no, I missed that bit off. It was, it was in my note, missed it off. <laughs> I think it's the only bit you missed off. You covered it really well. But yeah, the, so they finished sixth in the top division and won the league, Football League Cup in 1980. And then they were relegated in 82, promoted again in 83. But then, like you say, three consecutive relegations in 84, 85, 86. So they, you know, from what I read, it was the uh, financial overstretch when they tried to redevelop the stadium. Yeah, serious financial problems then. Yeah, that's a common theme with some of these clubs is financial mismanagement. Well, yeah, and, and to be honest, to this day, no one's learning the lessons, are they? No. No. Okay, so... That was your number five, Ant? Yeah. My number four was Coventry. Ah! Yeah, so number four, um, please. was Bolton. There <laughs> oh, we go. Okay, Dan, so your number three. My number three was Wolves. My number three was Bolton. <laughs> My number three is Nottingham Forest. Oh, my number two. My number two. Right, okay. well, let's talk about it then. Go on then, and start us off. So they, they beat in Hamburg in the European Cup um, to cold Tuesday nights in Cardiff. Um, it's been, they've had 19 managers since 2009. They've, they've not played top-flight football since 1999. Um, they did finish third in the Premiership in 1994-95 season. Their most successful period was uh, under Brian Clough, who spent 18 years at Forest. And he'd only been in charge at Leeds for 44 days. And he'd also managed their rivals, Derby County, but Forest still named him in 1975. And yeah, they went on to win the league, two European Cups. Uh, I'll let you guys talk about it. All right, I'll, I'll put a bit of flesh around the bones then. So yeah. European Cup winners in 1979-1980, they finished Third in the top flight in 84, 88, 89, and 95. So very consistent in the top flight. There were staples at the top of the league. They won the League Cup in 1989 and 1990. And like you say, they were relegated from the Premier League in 1999, and they've not returned since. So uh, in 2005, Nottingham Forest became the first former winners of the European Cup to be relegated into the third tier. That was the main reason why I've put them at number two on my list. Yeah, that's a sad, sad fall from grace. Yeah. No, I mean, I've, that's basically everything I've got. And then I, all I can add, really, is that they had the first million-pound player, Trev Francis. Yeah. But, and also, one funny thing I remember, I don't know if you guys remember this, but you know when Big Ron was in charge when they got relegated? when he went to sit in the wrong dugout against Arsenal. And I think, he, <laughs> I mean, that tenure didn't end up very well. 
because I think he got sacked. But it just uh, I think that was his debut as the manager and he sat in the wrong dugout. I thought that was hilarious. Yeah, <laughs> See if I can whack that onto the onto the uh, web pe- website, onto our page. <laughs> but yeah, I mean they've had some um, interesting times, haven't they? Like with Pierre Van Hoydonk's uh, strikes as well when they were in the Premier League when they needed him the most. And, yeah, just bad management, really, isn't it? I mean, we've got here that recently they had um, the family of the Al-Hawazi sacked seven managers in four years. And then this this guy who's bought it um, at the moment, who's the owner of Olympiacos as well, they're on to their fifth manager and he's not even been there th- I think just over three years so it just shows they're just a totally unstable club aren't they at the moment yeah 100% they, they changed the manager so much um, so I've got a few friends who are Forest fans and they, they're frustrated you don't give they don't give any manager time to develop a playing style and identity they're just changing all the time and you're never going to achieve anything like that I hope Chris Houston gets given time because when we get them out of that division, it'll be him. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I think it's more like keeping him in the keeping them in the division this season. I think it's the main priority. Right then, so we're on to my number two is Nottingham Forest. Oh yeah, same here for me. (laughs) And (laughs) my number two. Stockport County. Ooh, I did look yeah. at them. I did look at them. Uh, I'll admit they've, they've not won much. They're, they're not particularly a very big successful club, but they've spent 106 years in the Football League. In 96-97, they came second in Division 2, uh, gaining promotion uh, and also getting to a League Cup semi-final. Uh, they beat premiership sides, uh, established premiership sides, Blackburn, Southampton, West Ham along the way. Uh, eventually losing to Borough in the semi-finals. The following season, Dave Jones left for Southampton. Gary Megson took over. And they finished eighth in Division One, the championship. <clears throat> Their best ever finish. Uh, but in 2002, under Carlton Palmer, they were relegated. And following a series of, guess what, financial difficulties, uh, they were placed into administration in 2009. By the end of the 2012-13 season, they were relegated to Conference North and they lost their full-time status. Uh, their lowest position in the seventh tier was 11th, I think, which is 99 places from where they were in 97, 98. Um, and I think it's uh, in the top two of the furthest any team has ever fallen. And the other one that's in the top two is in my special mentions, so I'll save that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good one, mate. Yeah, I like that one. I like that. I hadn't, I hadn't, I hadn't thought of that one at all. So, yeah, I'm glad you went through that. Yeah, I saw that, but I forgot about their cup exploits, to be honest. Yeah, um, crazy. Very good. I remember them being in Camp Manager 98. I was, <laughs> I was watching them play when they were in the second tier, and um, they were really good. They were really good that year. They had um, Chris Marston playing like a man possessed in midfield. He's <laughs> an unfashionable player, but he just ran the show every game. Snapped up by Southampton, I think. Anyway, what's your number one then, Dan? 
Number one, I've gone for Leeds. Snap. Oh, not on my list. So come on, let's hear you guys then. Oh, not on your list. How can it not They're be not on your list? I knew, I knew you were going to pick it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, controversial there. All right, I've not, I've not written pages and pages because I think it justifies itself quite easily. Um, Good, because I'm not in. <laughs> Uh, yeah, successful team back in the 70s. Uh, they were English champions in the 91-92 season, uh, ju- just before the Premier League era began. They finished in the top five in between 98 and 2002. They were Champions League semi-finalists in 2001. And then the two seasons before that and the two seasons after, they went on UEFA Cup runs as well. They had a major investment in players like Rio Ferdinand, Mark Duca, Jimmy Floyd Hasselbaink, Robbie Keane. This was a big club that was going places and challenging to become mainstays at the top of the Premier League. But they they overstretched financially and they couldn't balance the books. And eventually they had to let players go and it resulted in them being relegated from the Premier League in 2004. Uh, Things didn't get much better and they were relegated again to League One in 2007. And uh, 16 years it's taken them to return to the Premier League this year. Like, like we said with a couple of the other teams, you know, they spent big to go big and ultimately it didn't work out for them and they couldn't balance the books, as you said. And but For a club like Leeds, who have historically been you know, a big club and they, well, until this year, had won the top flight more recently than Liverpool, to be, spend 16 years outside top flight is you know it's it's it's, it's incredible but yeah he doesn't think so no 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 I didn't say that I just left the max I knew you guys were going to be in it so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's about honor, I think <laughs> no not at all I, I do think it, it's a big club isn't it and they needed to be in the Premier League and it's it's all the better for being involved back in it isn't it as long as it's run properly, which clearly from what we said about the managers, surprising managers, that for a long time it wasn't run very well, was it? No. <laughs> to say the least. Well, I mean, uh, you, you know, if, I suppose you can look at it and say, well, you know, he, he, Peter Risedale spent a lot of money because he wanted to bring success to the club. But it's it's managing your finances so that you don't go... Yeah, he gambled, didn't he? He gambled yeah. on getting revenue from Champions League the following season and yeah. maybe qualify for the Champions League. It's it's a very it's a very fine line, isn't it, from spent overspending on players that aren't gonna perform and and not reach your goal and to not to epically fail. And unfortunately it just went wrong, didn't it? You know, like I mentioned Seth Johnson from Derby. What was it? Seven odd million in those days. That was just mental amount of money for a guy that hadn't really played in the top top league that long. And he took a risk and it failed badly. And injuries, I don't think, helped as well. And just overspending of wages, wasn't it? It's just getting big players into the club. I mean, Fowler was on ridiculous amounts of money, wasn't he? When he moved from Liverpool there and. But anyway, they're there now, aren't they? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, so we're going back to Portsmouth was my number one. 
So I'll, I'll just briefly just go what I had. They won the FA Cup in 2008. At the time, they had Canu, Mendes, Glenn Johnson, David James, Sol Campbell. And it was the first partnership between Redknapp and Gronkia as well. Um, there's this massive debt throughout the club um, via loans. Um, it was then um, a, a guy called Solomon Al-Fahin, Abu Dhabi property developer, um, who claimed to have wealth of three billion pounds, went to take over the club. However, he was found out to be a fraud and was arrested for stealing five million pounds from his wife to make the initial payment. <laughs> so that was a, a bit of a, a tale not to always go with people abroad. Um, but still, Portsmouth decided to then try again with another another shake, which ended up being another um, fake one, to put it bluntly. So we're now going into um, them now being in Division 1, uh, so in the Championship, and this is in June 2011. So a guy called Vladimir Angdov, um, was brought to Portsmouth attention. So like I've said, they've already had gone through two fake shakes and now they've got a Russian gangster now with a shady past um, <laughs> taken over. You're portraying this. This is brilliant. <laughs> um, so the club went into administration for the second time in two years. They owed excess of £160 million to creditors, players and staff. So nicely at the beginning of uh, the 2010-11 uh, season, relegated to D- League One with a nice 10-point penalty for administration. Obviously, they weren't, aren't able to buy any players, so they basically played the youth team. Uh, they didn't win a game in 23 games. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty mad. Um, eventually, though, it was bought by um, the Pom- Pompey uh, Supporters Trust, Uh took over to the club prior to the 11-12 season. But, but they still struggled to sort of attract players and got relegated. Um, so after five years now in the lowest in League 2, they finally got themselves promoted back up to um, League 1. And then um, Walt Disney uh, CEO, Mike Esner, bought into them in 2017. Um, there was 15 managers in, in this turbulent 13-year period. Um, they included some great names. Um, Tony Adams, Paul Hart, Richie Barker, Andy Awful, and Gary Waddock. You see Andy Awful? Yeah. <laughs> and that's your predictive text there, Chris. <laughs> Orford. Yeah. <laughs> um. So, yeah, so it was a very interesting uh, decade for them. But they seem to be now in Division 1 on the up. So so that's why I put them in number one, because they just obviously couldn't run a, be run properly. And it's just a, a massive mess. Right then, so that's everyone's top tens then. Yeah. Again. We're very close to, to getting exactly bang on, aren't we? No, you left Leeds off. Hey, I said it's <laughs> magical. 
Like I said. Oh, he thinks off to be tactical. <laughs> Any special mentions? Uh, yeah. Um, I won't go into too much detail with any of them, but um, obviously I had Notts County. Uh, the one that I mentioned when I talked about Stockport being one of the biggest drops ever in football, uh, the other club was a team called Workington. Mm. They're in okay. Tumbridge, apparently. Uh, in 1965 and 66, they finished in fifth place in the old third division, uh, which was the equivalent of 49th in the country. They are now second in the Northern Premier League Northwest Division, which is the eighth tier of football. Wow. wow. Okay. That is pretty much all on that. Um, the other one I had was uh, I had Portsmouth. I also had Leighton Orient. And the only reason, again, I couldn't, I wanted to put them in, but I couldn't find the info for it, was that before World War One, they were actually considered one of the big teams in North London. And they had a lot of money, they had a lot of good players, and a lot of their squad went off to World War One, and not many of them came back. Uh, and the ones that did come back uh, didn't want to play football anymore. And at the same time, Woolwich Arsenal moved up from South London to occupy another spot in North London. And so they, they kind of dropped a little bit. And finally, the only other one I had was Everton. Because they did Everton. Okay. Who were once obviously one of the best teams in the world, competed for the league and year in, year out. And now they've not won a cup for, what, 35 years, possibly? 25. No, 95, 25 years. Oh, yeah. Paul Ryder. And the only reason I didn't put them in was because they're still in the top flight. And they've not really declined in that sense. Okay. Uh, they should, for me, I think they, you, you'd like to think they should be winning a bit more. Uh, what about you, Dan? Any, any for you? Yeah, a few, a few different ones actually. Um, one of my honourable mentions is Norwich City. They finished third in the Premier League in the ninety-two, ninety-three season. Um, the following year, they beat Bayern Munich in the UEFA Cup. And then if you fast forward a few years, they're relegated to League One. And on the opening game of the season, they lost to Colchester. So they're, they're bottom of League Two. I think it was 7-1, wasn't it? Yeah. So much so that they appointed Colchester manager. <laughs> yeah. 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 Went from third in the Premier League to bottom of League One. Uh, another one was um, Berry. Uh, they played in the Championship in the 1997 season. And they've been wound up now. Yeah. So, slightly different view on it, but yeah, they are no more. Yeah, and sure. the other one I got is Man City, who were relegated from the Premier League in '96, and they were relegated again in 1998. And they were the second former winners of a European trophy to be relegated to the third tier, and that was after an East German team called Magdeburg. That's good. I had Man City as well, and I actually had Darlington as well. They went bust and then restarted again due to a fraudulent uh, owner who decided to build a 25,000 all seat stadium for um, illegally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But no, no, that's a very good list there, guys. Nicely done. I'll um, list the social, shall I, as well? Yeah. What have they got with Okay, so Chris Kelly has put Grimsby, Grimsby Town. 
So they were top of the championship in 2001, went to non-league um, in 2010. Yeah, that's a good one, that is. That was. Um, Rodney McCain said Wolves, 1980s, which you right, rightfully said. And then he said Sunderland at present. Dan Wade has then come in and said um, Bolton have gone down from drawing at the Alliance Arena to losing 6-3 at home to Port Vale in the space of 13 years, which we both all agreed on. And Ash at uh, Cathedral Sport Podcast said um, Oldham springs to mind. Um, and then he said Bolton as well. And um, could chuck in Notts County and Cambridge United. And then I got another shout out for Oliver Marlin. And he says Portsmouth, Sunderland and Bolton Wanderers. Yeah, and then the final one I got here is from uh, the lads at the Stuart Pod, and they said um, Black Blackpool from the Premier League to League One, Leeds going from Champions League semi-finals to League One, and Man United since Fergie left. That's an interesting one. Yeah, that's a slightly different view on it, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, anyone else with any lists that they want um, putting on? please um, email us at varatthebar2020 at gmail.com. Um, you can catch us on uh, Twitter, which is var um, at the bar one or Facebook, which is just var at the bar. Okay, so have we got anything for Warnock Watch, guys? Well, first of all, I'll just to give you a bit of an update on Middlesbrough's progress. So since we last talked about him, they lost 3-2 at Huddersfield. A little bit uncharacteristic, less than three goals after that great defensive start of the season. But then bounced back with a 2-1 home win against Swansea. But they've lost the last two games, 1-0 at Stoke and then 3-0 at Preston. I've got a couple of quotes for you. Uh, The first one is following the Stoke game. Some of you may have seen this in the press because it it did make the news. I certainly did. (laughs) There was a bit of a rant from Neil Warnock. The facilities we got changed in were an absolute disgrace today. I wouldn't have put animals in it. The toilets were blocked up. We've got fumes coming in from a bloody engine outside the dressing room. Water everywhere on the floor. It's a disgrace for the championship. Absolute disgrace. Those changing rooms were a pigsty. In fact, pigs would have seen it and run away. There's no way we're giving them a dressing room when they come up to our place. If our chairman won't, I'll pay for a porter cabin. <laughs> Brilliant four up there. Funny, did, didn't you say Middlesbrough lost that game? Yes, 1-0 at Stoke. Uh, that's quite funny that he's mentioned that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I've, um, I've got another quote. It's um, actually when they're in preparation for the Stoke game. 
someone asked uh, whether his players are prepared for the game. And he said, we haven't done anything. We had a day off yesterday. Uh, Paddy McNair and the lads played golf for nine hours. So if we lose at Stoke, you can blame the golf. If players are going to drive in for an hour and then an hour back just to train for an hour and a half and do a little warm down, surely you've just got to trust your players. I asked them to just take the dog out and go for a little walk. Sometimes I think people do things for the sake of doing it, where I don't give a damn, really. I don't even mind telling you that they played a lot of golf. If I get stick, I get stick. I think rest is so important. And if I can save a guy driving in and help him relax, they just need to have a bit of a walk. Get the lactic acid out, but nothing drastic. I thought that was a really interesting take on management from Neil Warnock there. Very <laughs> Definitely got experience, hasn't he? So you got to listen to him. Not every manager will just send the players out to play golf. <laughs> it's a training. It's a hard yeah. life. And, they, and then they lost 1-0 at Stoke, so mm, maybe maybe we'll have to question his methods a little bit. <laughs> but yeah, that's all I've got on Warnock Watch this week. We'll keep you posted for uh, more updates, though. No, no, we've got... Well, as you know, this is our last one before Christmas and New Year, so hopefully we'll be packed with new quotes over the Christmas period and New Year period for our listeners. So how's the fantasy football going, Dan? Yeah, so big news in the fantasy football league is that we have a new leader. No way. Now it's Clerk de Cruz who is top of the league. It's lockdown 11 and he's got 708 points, which is a three-point lead over Mr. Porter. Oh, yeah. Uh, out of us three, Ant is ahead. He's in 20th place in the league. One points. Yeah, calm down, Ant. We've still got the quiz to come. Yeah, no. <laughs> uh, yeah, Ant's, Ant's uh, 20th place with 601 points. I'm in 30th place with 563. So, um, yeah, I've had a few bad weeks. Uh, Ant's got a bit of a cushion now ahead of me. And Chris, you're in 35th in the league. 550 points, so you've caught me up. Keeping consistent, mate. You've dragged into a relegation battle with me, I'm afraid. <laughs> yeah, getting that way. <laughs> By the size of things. <laughs> uh, for game week 11, uh, the highest scorer was Adam Miftor with 91 points. So his team, he got five points from Rhys James, two points from Ben Chilwell, Nine points from Vestergaard, four points from Mares, fourteen points from Mo Salah, thirteen points from San. His captain was Kevin De Bruyne, bagged him twenty-eight points. And he had Bruno Fernandez with six points, Patrick Bamford with eight points, and Shea Adams picked up a couple. Yeah, De Bruyne was captain that week, twenty-eight points. That's uh, really wow. Helpful. That's great. That is. I could do with that this week. So, yeah, so we've, we've got a bit of catching up to do there, Dan. Yeah, sound like a broken record, aren't we?
Right then, guys, we're on to the second part of the pod now, and it's a massive first for us. It's our first ever interview, and we've got today on the pod the chairman of Abbey Mead Rovers FC, lead of Team Undefeatable Virtual Walking Football, and over 60s walking football coach for England under the banner of the WFA. We've got Stuart Landworthy. Correct me if I'm wrong with any of my research then. But uh, currently you're the England men's over 60 walking football manager, England women's over 40 walking football manager, leader of Team Undefeatable, current chairman of Abbey Mead Rovers since 1998, and uh, you've launched your own company, Stuart Langworthy Training. Yeah, just just a couple of updates on that. Uh, I, I was uh, running the women's over 40s, but we've now appointed a new manager, so I'm stepping back to become assistant i'm going to i'm going to help him with that uh, i i was chairman of Mead rovers for 21 years but last last year stepped back because the the england stuff was getting well walking football was basically taking over my life so i i couldn't do the club the club justice we we have at Mead rovers now we have over 50 teams so it's a huge club you can ju- you can join Abbey Mead Rovers at four years old and then keep going till you're 84. It, it's uh, when we started it, we had five or six teams, and yeah, I was chairman for 21 years, so I'm more than happy with uh, you know really proud of, of what we've achieved there at the club, and it's great to, to step back from it now. Myself and my my wife are uh, presidents now of the club, so wow. uh, it's it's, uh, it's great. It's, it's been a been a huge part of our lives that has. And I also want to point out, uh, because we don't really want to upset anyone, that yet yeah, I'm the over-60s England manager for the Walking Football Association. I want to really start, start things off, if that's okay, Stu, by um, asking how you actually got into Walking Football. Just a bit of your history about yourself, if that's okay. Yeah, yeah, fine. Okay, I've, I've always played football from, from junior school, like a lot of people. I started coaching a team when I was 12 years old. I played football all the way up until uh, I was 47. I was a striker, scored a lot of goals. But when I was 47, I ended up playing for the fourth team and playing at sweeper, gradually working backwards through the positions and backwards through the teams. (laughs) Um, And then at age 47, uh, I had a hip replacement. And I thought that my days of football were finished. When my youngest son became 16 years old, we set up a, a men's third team at Abbey Mead Rovers, and I foolishly decided I'd try and play. That was in this sort of bottom league uh, with a load of young kids and a few older heads. Uh, I, I foolishly thought that I'd better come on for 10 minutes at the end of the game and score a few goals, but um, it wasn't going to happen. Uh, I was t- by that point too old and too, too nervous about injuring the hip again. So um, I, I saw an advert uh, in the local paper, or an article rather, in the local paper with some guys who were playing walking football near me in Stroud. So I contacted them uh, to find out a little bit about it. Uh, they invited me along to their sessions and within about three or four months, we were playing in a national final, which, which completely blew me away. I'd only just started this game and we were in the national finals and uh, I, I just got the bug for it from then on. And we, I came back to Abbey Mead Rovers. We started a team up at Abbey Mead. 
we came runners. Oh, you can't say runners up, can you? <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> we came. We came second, second in the country and third in the country on a couple of a couple of occasions. We won all sorts of awards for our inclusion. Um, we've now got three three ordinary walking football sessions, one disability walking football session, and we've got over eighty members at the club uh, in the walking football section of the club, and it, it's it's become a massive part of our lives, and uh, it's just just fantastic. I think we've been going to Abbeymead now for about six years, so wow. I've been playing walking football for for just over six years now. So um, for the listeners who may not be familiar with walking football, what are the key differences between walking football and normal football? Well, there are actually over 50 differences. Uh, the key ones are obviously that there is no running allowed. Although if you've seen some footage of walking football on YouTube, you've probably thought to yourself, that looks like running. Yeah, and that is the, uh, that is the biggest problem in the game is trying to uh, get good, really good referees who are going to clamp down on running because it's very difficult. You know, I, I, like I just said to you, if you asked me to go onto a 11 side pitch and run, I couldn't do it. But if you get me on a walking football pitch where you're not allowed to run, apparently I do. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's it's a difficult thing. People often don't do it on purpose, but it's the um, it's like the old Olympic sport where you've got to have one foot on the floor all the time. And that's the definition, you know, you've got to try and keep one foot planted all the time. It's difficult. It's very, very difficult. The other major difference is it's below head height. Uh, it's non-contact. Uh, the, the FA have a set of rules as well. And in their rules, they, they allow minimal contact. The WFA rules are non-contact, which we, we believe is more sensible for the demographic and the age group that you're dealing with, really, with walking football. But, and, you know, minimal contact leaves itself open to interpretation. We, we believe in non-contact. You know, if, if you contact someone in, in trying to gain an advantage by getting the ball, then it's a free kick. I think we're probably, we'd be naive if we thought you'd go through sort of an hour of walking football and two people wouldn't touch and come into contact with each other. But the idea is if you, if you seek an advantage from contact, then it's a free kick against you. And uh, I've seen some clips on YouTube. Is the goal size different to regular football? Yeah, it's uh, it's a D, and uh, the outfield players are not allowed inside the D. The goalkeeper is not allowed outside of the D. It's six meters out from the goal. Because one of the problems with walking football is that um, because it's still a relatively new sport, you you get different facilities. Uh, we're very lucky where we are that we've got an Astro that we can play on and our pitch sizes are, are just about right. They're a little on the small side. But you can go to some clubs and they'll have an 11 aside Astro and they play the whole width of the pitch. So therefore their, their area might be a bit bigger. And you can go to some pitches and they've got the three foot high five aside goals and you go to other pitches and they've got the six foot high mini soccer goals. So you know, it, it's very much a, still a developing sport. We are trying to get some consistency. And generally speaking, most places now play with the mini soccer goals. Most pitches play on a sort of 50 by 30 or 40 by 30 pitch. Um, and the D is normally six metres. And uh, it's six aside. And as I say, the goalkeeper can't come out of their area and players can't go in their area. How many um, walking football teams are there in the UK, Stu? 
Uh, there are loads. I don't know how many teams, but the latest figures we have is that in England alone, there are over 60,000 people playing the sport. Um, okay. So it's, it's, it's a, it is a big sport. It's growing. Most countries now play walking football as well. Uh, we have a, a World Nations Cup coming up in the summer, which we're still, fingers crossed, will we'll run. Uh, and that's going to be at the Etihad Complex in Manchester. As you know, it, it was supposed to happen last year, obviously, because of COVID, it was called off. But we, we're aiming to have 16 teams at over 50 and 16 teams at over 60 in the World, in the World Nations Cups. So there's a lot of countries out there who are playing it and uh, the interest is growing globally. How competitive is it um, on an international scale? Have you found the level slowly, progressively getting higher? It's, it's certainly getting better. I mean, the, the whole reason why, three, three years ago, the whole reason why the England teams were, were set up by the WFA was to help raise the profile. So by playing other, other countries, that would help to raise the profile in those countries. For, for example, when we went, we took an over-60s team to Gibraltar and most of their players were, were quite a bit older. It was quite a one-sided game with the, the eventual score being, I think, 11-0. But the impact of that was that uh, it was on Gibraltar TV and they had a number of new people join, having seen what the sport was and what the sport was about. So, you know, we're, we're into, you know, yes, you want to play international games, but also you, we want to help to try and uh, spread the, the, the word of walking football and the health benefits and the fun that older people can have playing the sport. So, um, but yeah, in terms of standard, yes, it has improved. We, we won the European Nations Cup two years ago. And at the time, there were only three countries that, in Europe that had walking football teams where they, they'd held trials and they were actually a, a sort of national team. Now the situation would be very different. Uh, there'll be lots more teams. And we know that those teams that we played then, Wales and, and Italy, are going to be much stronger now than they were then. Uh, we, the over-60s have lost a game. and We, we did lose 1-0 to Italy in, in Italy. They, they, they got a very large double-decker bus and they parked it right in front of the goal. <laughs> um, that doesn't sound like an Italian football team. Uh, we must have had about 40 shots on target and we just could not score. And they had one deflected shot, which went in. Oh, so yeah, uh, we've all been there. That's, that's football, isn't it? Yeah. That's football. Is, there quite a few, um, is there quite a few tournaments that you compete in? There's a growing number. Yeah, there, there, there are lots of walking football tournaments. There's a number of organisations who are out there to try and make a bit of money out of it. You know, from a, from a business point of view, uh, there, there have been organisations like um, who organise sporting tours and things like that for clubs uh, for many, many years. And, and obviously our demographic, the silver surfers, as they call us, our age group, <laughs> you know, there's, there's a lot of disposable income and there's a number of organisations who are tapping into the fact that walking football teams like to go on tour and, you know, they like to play in competitions and tournaments. So, yeah, there's, there's an awful lot of, of club tournaments around. Uh, there aren't many international tournaments around. Uh, you know, there have been international tournaments which have involved a, a lot of club sides representing countries. Uh, but 
um, you know, we, we want to try and make sure that the teams that enter our tournaments are national teams as far as we can. And, and you know, they've had trials and, you know, they're, they're a selected team. That's great. With regards to, like, the countries that you visited during your coaching, what which countries sort of have you most enjoyed seeing and, you know, culturally and of just their ethos of football? Um, I well, I have to say, I, I, I very feel very lucky to have had the opportunity to go to these places. They've all been brilliant in in their own right. Malaysia was fascinating because in Malaysia, the people who were on our training courses, the vast majority of them had never kicked a football before, and they were doctors. And you know, it came to pass that in Malaysia, they've got a terrible obesity problem. And what they wanted to do was they wanted to get into schools. They wanted to go into schools and play walking football. So they needed to know about the rules. They needed to know about refereeing and how to coach it. So they could go into schools and help to uh, prevent childhood obesity in schools. So that was a fascinating one. And, and trying to coach those people, I had to go right back to basics and coach them as if they've never played football before. So that, that was fascinating. Um, Singapore was, was brilliant. In Singapore, they have something called walking football for health. And what you had in Singapore was three generations often you, of people playing in the same games. Um, so the culture there was, was very different. Rwanda w- was, was brilliant because the love for football in Rwanda, I mean, obviously there's, there's still quite a bit of uh, poverty over there, but every, every single flat bit of land there were people out playing football. And when, when we were running our training session, there were hundreds of youngsters watching. They were just fascinated by what we were doing. Wow. And um, yeah, you know, in, each in their own right has, has been really interesting. Greece, when we went to Crete, those of us who went there will never forget that. That wasn't more of a training session. That was more um, the, the soccer sixes were playing their, their World Cup. Um, on the beach at uh, Rethmino. Um, and um, they had a 3,000-seater stadium built for their Soccer Six World Cup. And we played against Greece over 50 and over 60 in between the semi-finals and the finals. And we had a crowd of 3,000 in there under floodlights. These, these games, which was awesome. And the, the playing of those matches with, with the crowd and the floodlights, and then the celebrations afterwards with the players and the families afterwards were something that we'd all like to remember. If you <laughs> not many of us can, but <laughs> later on in the evening. But it was a it, it was a, an amazing event and a brilliant evening of celebration. And the number of people who went to that who said that was that was the best football occasion of my life. Um, oh, you know, then you you know you, you know you're doing things which are special when you when people say that to you. Yeah it sounds incredible. Just out, of, just out of curiosity, do you, do you know if South America have a big walking football community? Uh, yes. Yeah, they have beach uh, football and street football. I just wondered if there's a point where the older generation go, right, let's yeah. start walking. Yeah, there's, there's an organisation, again, out there called Walking Football for Health, if I'm not mistaken, and, and they, they play and they get groups of 20 to 30 people, uh, mixed gender, mixed age. We've had interest from Brazil, um, and I think that the WFA are looking for someone to go out there and do a coaching course in Brazil. I, 
okay, you know, if, if I must. Uh, <laughs> not at the moment, but it's not a bad life, is it? <laughs> no, I have to twist no. your arm for that. I mean, and, but yeah, I know. But the, the thing is, you know, there's there's a myth there's a myth here that needs to be cleared up. We don't get paid for this. This is all voluntary. You know, everything in, that we do with the WFA, uh, we're, we're a non-for-profit making organisation. Uh, everything we do is voluntary. When we've been to these places, they they paid for our flights and our hotels. We we pay for other things. You know, going to Singapore and Malaysia cost it cost me and my family. They didn't come with me, but it, you know, it cost us money to go. But you know, they're, for me, they're life-changing um, experiences, and I wouldn't change it for anything. But we certainly don't get paid, and it's certainly not a jolly. And we don't get we don't get days and days to go and explore the place. We usually try and build in one day to take in a bit of the culture and to to see a little bit of the place. So, can you just quickly explain to us how you became involved in Team Undefeatable in that that campaign and how you? raise the awareness and obviously getting people out for physical and the mental benefits of the sport yeah to get active yeah yeah well i mean the, the, go if we go back a stage i mean walking football generally is aimed at the over 50s uh, yeah. but most most clubs uh, are very inclusive so for example at abbey mead rovers we have a 30 30 year old guy with a heart condition who is not allowed to play 11-side football. So he comes along and joins in our walking football sessions. We have a guy who's in, in his mid-30s who has had a stroke. Uh, he was given a 2% chance of survival, and he's now working his way back to fitness, and he comes along and joins in our walking football sessions. So it's a, it's a very inclusive sport. And it's what it's doing is getting... A lot of our players, if you spoke to our players, they would tell you it's one of the most, they look forward to their walking football sessions more than most things in the week. It gets them out, it gets them active. They love the banter, they love the fun. The walking football tagline, if you like, is fun, friendship and fitness. And that's what it's all about. You know, it's about having fun on the pitch, having a laugh, creating new friends and at the same time, uh, improving your physical fitness. So it, Walking football is a fantastic sport for physical and mental uh, health. And, we, you know, I've been very lucky, I suppose, to have been to different countries around the world, uh, like Malaysia and Singapore and Rwanda. And we've done coaching courses out in, in those places. And out of the blue one day, I uh, received an email from We Are Undefeatable asking me if I would like to um, become the... We are undefeatable virtual walking football manager. So it, it was. It came completely out of the blue, and it was a huge honour. I mean, I, I've seen the campaign on TV, and it was just a, a huge thrill and a huge honour to be asked to get involved in it. Um, my first question was, "What on earth do you mean by virtual walking football?" Uh, which is the question that most people ask ask me. <laughs> And, you know, so it, it was aimed at people who are living with long, long-term health conditions with the aim of get, getting them up and active. Many of these people, because of lockdown, were still shielding. So we had to come up with things that you could do in your own house or in your own back garden. Um, what I've tried to do is create a, a bit of competition. So we took on board 12 people and we, we split them into the reds and the whites. So you had competition between the red team and the white team every week I would film myself 
doing some walking football drills in the back garden. And then I would send them to them on um, WhatsApp and they would practice these drills in their back garden or in their back room. And then we would meet on Zoom once a week and check how everyone was, see how they were doing with the activities. And, and the other thing that we did was we, we kind of stumbled across uh, a keepy-uppy challenge. There was a young girl called Imogen who had set herself a target of doing 7.1 million keep-ups during lockdown for the 7.1 million key workers. So we, we tagged on to this campaign and we got everyone in the We Are Undefeatables group to do keep-ups each week. Now, in week one, they had done, as a group, they'd done something like 350. But by the end of week 10, they had done 122,000 in 10 weeks. Wow. And one, one of the team had done over 16,000 herself. So th this, this keep-up challenge just grabbed their imagination. And, you know, as you know, if you've gone out and do keep-ups, it improves your balance, it improves your, your uh, uh, I don't know, your motivation, uh, your coordination and improved all those things. And they were setting themselves individual targets towards a team target of, of getting to the, the magic 100,000 in the 10 weeks. So, yeah, th that, that's how it worked, really. It was, it was virtual. Um, we didn't meet up with each other. We still haven't met as a team. And during this latest lockdown, we've, we've joined up again on Zoom. And we set ourselves a new challenge of walking to John O'Groats, from Land's End to John O'Groats and back. So everyone's out walking and every week they send in how many miles they've done and I'm adding it together. And we've, we've gone from Land's End up to John O'Groats and we're, we're now back. We've just gone past Birmingham on the way home. Right. It's, it's quite, quite incredible. They're, they're an amazing group of people. They really are a fantastic group of people. So inspirational. No, fantastic. Yeah. They're very creative there as well. It's really good. Yeah, well, it, it had to be something that they could all access. So we had to come up with things that they could do if they weren't going out. So, you know, hence the drills, hence the keep-ups. And we did quizzes every week, not, not necessarily football quizzes, but, you know, through lockdown, you probably saw there are hundreds of quizzes going around. And, well, we, we did these quizzes and, you know, I kept team scores and everything. And, yeah, it was brilliant. It was great fun. They became a great support network for each other as well. You know, if someone put a message on one day to say they were feeling a bit down, they all jumped in and supported each other and helped to lift each other up as well. And it was, it was the most fascinating and rewarding and challenging, but inspirational thing that I've been involved in for many, many years. It was absolutely superb. Yeah, lockdown's been hard on not just people that are vulnerable, but on many people that don't have those struggles. And it just goes to show that mental health awareness is very important. But lockdown's been hard on a lot of people. So that, that group that you've set up there has been very important. Yeah. Uh, very, very important for each other and you know very important for me as well I mean it's, it's kept me going as well and uh, you know once again it's the, the power of, of, a, of a group activity you know and, and supporting each other all the time all the way through it it's just been quite remarkable it really has that's great I mean that comes nicely on to be honest uh, what you're saying about how difficult it is just obviously for everybody involved but how's the support from sort of grassroots level to national level okay um well as as we all know the fa is the is the governing body for football and the, the walking football association is a 
well, all, all governing bodies are self-proclaimed and we're, we're the self-proclaimed uh, governing body for walking football. When, when the return to play guidelines came out from the FA, I think it was something like a 15-page document. And it, it's by no means a criticism. It's, it's no way a criticism of the FA. But it just goes to show that in the 15-page document, walking football was mentioned in one question and one answer at the end of the document. And the Walking Football Association, we just concentrate on the demographic of the people who are just playing walking football and nothing else. So we were able to give very specific guidelines to clubs on return to play. We, we run nation, national cups for, for clubs. Um, we, we train referees. The biggest problem in walking football really is the lack of referees. And um, on most club nights, you'll get a group of players who, if they're not refereed, they, they will run. And it will become a bit, bit of a sort of five-a-side running Sunday morning football match, you know, and it needs, it needs good referees. So the WFA has got a referees course, and we've now trained well over 100 referees. We've written a, a grassroots coaching course. Uh, my son is a UEFA B qualified coach, and the two of us wrote wrote a, a, a very basic grassroots coaching course where you know we can deliver it in the morning and then we can assess people in the afternoon on their on their coaching ability um, that that seems to have been more interest we've, we've had more interest internationally from that than we have in this country so i think what what tends to happen in this country is that uh, you book an astroturf for an hour and the people turn up and they, they want to play for an hour rather than be coached. They just want to get out there and have fun for their hour. And that's absolutely fine. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. My club's exactly the same. As soon as we get on there, we do a five-minute warm-up and then we get, we get playing. So what else? We, we've just teamed up with the Lions Club. Uh, they, they're running a scheme called uh, Message in a Bottle, which is where you, um, you have a bottle, uh, like a container. You take it in your kit bag. And it's got all your personal information inside it, like name, any allergies, any medication, next of kin to contact in case of emergency. And, you know, the reality is that uh, with people of the age that we're dealing with, you do occasionally and very, very, very occasionally have tragedies on, on the pitch. There's been a couple of people who have had, you know, cardiac arrests on a pitch um, and the use of a, having a, a defibrillator having people who are first aid trained and having the, the details of who to contact and medication things is absolutely essential. So we're working hard on, on things like that, you know, to support grassroots at all clubs. Yeah, you want to get these people involved, but obviously it comes with a risk. So it's just about minimising that risk. Yeah, most, most clubs have, a, have like a waiver form where you you know, you get people to say that they're, they're fit and healthy. At the moment, we're, we're following the COVID guidelines. We, you know, we're, we're taking temperatures. Uh, we're doing the track and trace. We're using hand sanitizers. You know, we ask, we ask people before the session, if you're not feeling very well, please don't, please don't come. Please don't play if you're not feeling well. If you feel, that, you know, during the session, if you don't feel right, please stop. Please tell someone and we'll get you looked at. You know, so it, it, it's... You know, it's very, very important. The WFA was donated a couple of defibrillators, pitch side defibrillators, which are very important. And, you know, we're working hard to build up relationships with organisations where we can get more of these donated to grassroots because 
yeah, it, it's it's very, very important to get people up and active and out and healthy for all the reasons we've spoken about. But given the age group, I mean, we, we've got people in their 80s. There's a guy in Liverpool in, in his 90s who still plays. Wow. It's brilliant. It is absolutely brilliant. But obviously, with that kind of age group, occasionally tragedies happen. So, um, you know, you've got to try and uh, prepare for that as best you can. Um, and there's still a bit of stigma, you know, people who have just turned 50, um, a lot of them are still playing, you know, like to play running football or they like to play vets football, which is absolutely fine. You know, with, with walking football, don't knock it until you've tried it. And, uh, you know, because it is great fun. It is great for fitness. If you can imagine trying to do one of those power walks for an hour, you know, when you've, when, when you've come off a walking football pitch for an hour, you've worked hard. So you've, you've really done your physical health an awful lot of good uh, but as well you know it, it's the mental side of things it's the the having fun you know we, we were talking about earlier about these um walking football teams going on tour uh, there's a guy who plays with with me at abbey Meet, and we went on football tours in our 20s because we played for the same eleven side team and you know you do all the things that you do when you're on walking football tour you don't actually sorry on, on football tour you don't actually play much football you end up drinking all day and going out nightclubbing and things like that. Um, but we, we went on tour to Manchester as a walking football team. And, you know, we, we had equally as much fun, but it was like different fun. You know, it was trying to find a restaurant that served the food we liked. It was but lending glasses so that we could read the menu to each other. And, uh, you know, planning in an afternoon kip rather than being out on the lash all day. You know, things like that. It was... <laughs> You know, you, you can still have a have an awful lot of fun, uh, you, you know, but it was it was just just very different. And yeah, there are there are loads of these opportunities for teams to go on tour different places, and uh, and it's great. It's a, it's a really growing market. It's a massively growing market, and uh, walking football is growing so fast. And it's it's a great game. So come along and give it a go. And if if anyone listens to this and they don't know where to find about walking football, then they can either go to the WFA website and there's a find a club page on the WFA website or they can go to their local FA. The FA are involved in walking football but but pretty much at county level. There are some really good county leagues out there run by the county FAs and they all have a website so you can find clubs on there as well. But yeah you, you end up by playing in two different tournaments. You play a, an FA tournament with one set of rules and a, another tournament with a different set of rules and you know, the WFA are really trying hard to standardise things to make it a lot more simple for people. Yeah. I mean, what I'll do as well is when, when I um, put it out on Twitter, we'll do a link to the WFA page. So hopefully circle around a bit more to people online and, and hopefully away, raise awareness for them as well. They might not know, but there might be something absolutely perfect for them down the road or something yeah. like that. Either. If, if, if people just go into Google and just, you know, Google walking football in Gloucester or wherever they live, it'll come up with the different clubs in the area. There's, it's, it, I think people would be quite surprised at how many clubs there are around. And it, it's just growing all the time, all the time. That's great. I meant to say earlier, actually, sorry, we were talking about um, the, the fund. The, the WFA recently did a survey um, and something like 80% of people said that uh, it, it was the, the they, they enjoyed their walking football session as much as anything in the week. 
is their favourite time of the week, the, the walking football session. It really is very, very popular amongst people. You know, players really look forward to it. Do you think it's just mainly just to get out and about and the social elements, just to do something that they've enjoyed doing most of their time and in their life and get to continue to do it just in a different form? Is that in your opinion? Yeah, yeah I think the majority of people who play walking football, I think, have played football. And if, if you've, you know, as soon as you step over that white line, you get out there and you, you, get, you have a different mindset and you want to play and it's competitive. But, but often, you know, most walking football takes place at club nights where what's more important probably is the banter and the fun that you have with each other. But there are, there are people turning up to sessions who've never played, walk, never played football before. So it's, it's a completely inclusive sport. You know, it's, it's, you know uh, the fact that you can't run makes it, uh, is, is, makes the pitch a level playing field, you know, for different ages. Uh, the women's game is growing. And being involved in the women's teams has been fantastic because at most clubs, they play with, with and against the men. But they actually really enjoy playing with and against other women as well. And that's a, a, a massively growing area at the moment. And the WFA have now got, we've now got seven England teams. We've got over 50s, 60, 65, 70 and 75. And then women's teams, we've got 40s, 50s and 60s. So wow. it's just, it's just growing all the time. Isn't that former football professionals that play it, do you know? There aren't many. Uh, we've got Alan Kennedy in the uh, over 60s. Oh, yeah. uh, Ex-Liverpool scored the winning yeah. goal in the European Cup final a couple of times. He's quite a character. Um, <laughs> we have um, we have Graham Collier, who's ex Notts Forest and Scunthorpe. Uh, he's in the team as well. Um, Chris Waddle plays a little bit up in the Sheffield area wow. as well. We, have, we, have, we haven't seen him at any of our sessions yet, but we're hoping to at some point. So there are a few, but but not many. And that's the beauty of the sport, really, is that. You look at our England teams at over 50 and 60, and we've got maybe three ex-pros, four at most, out of 40 players. And it's giving, it's giving people an opportunity, including myself. You know, if you asked me five years ago, would I be managing a national team? You know, it, it's crazy. I, I still have to pinch myself. This is what I'm doing is a huge honour for me. Um, and I have to pinch myself every day. You know, to use the expression, you know, over 60s walking football, England walking football manager. It's just, yeah, it's, it's a massive honour. Um, and it's giving people like me opportunities that we never thought we'd have. As a sort of player manager, do you ever think about whacking yourself on at any point? Uh, well, I turned 60 in March. So uh, <laughs> up, until, up until this point... Uh, I did. I did get a very, very brief run out for the over fifties in Greece. Uh, they, we, they, they were a few shorter players and had a few injuries, so I was on the bench for that game and I got on for the last couple of minutes. But yeah, I turned sixty in March. As much as I would love to get a game, uh, I would only get a game on merit, and I would have to have. I, I play for the Southwest region. So I'm sort of there or thereabouts. I'm hoping it will be a little bit easier being one of the youngest in an age group rather than being one of the oldest in the previous age group. <laughs> so uh, I, would love, I would love to play, 
that I wouldn't just pick myself for the sake of picking myself. I'd have to make sure it was justified. <laughs> no, but good yeah, point. I'll play. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much. Um, it's very inspirational, and uh, I've learned a lot from the session. So thank you very much. Uh, no, thank yeah, you very much for uh, taking the time to. Can I say thanks to you guys as well for uh, for helping to raise the profile of the sport because that's what that's what this is all about. I mean, I. I, I love doing these things because we talk about walking football and the benefits of it. So the more we can raise the profile, um, we do need more sponsorship in the sport. You know, there are all sorts of businesses out there that, that whose customers are the right demographic, uh, but we do struggle to get sponsorship. So we're, we're constantly looking for sponsors to make sure that our England players don't have to pay for training days and kits and things like that. Um, most of this is self-funded at the moment for them. All matches are self-funded. We try and make everything else uh, free for them. But uh, doing things like this help, helps to raise the profile. So thank you guys for, for doing that, for helping me to raise the profile of the sport here. So thank you. Okay, we'd like to thank Stu for coming on to the pod for this episode. It's definitely personally struck a chord with the mental health and physical health side and hopefully it will do the same for all our listeners as well and hopefully even if one person signs up to the wfa website or look to take it up then that's one extra person to play and then that's jobs done for everyone so i'd like to say thank you very much to Stu for coming on the pod and taking the time to do that hope you guys echo my thoughts as well with that Definitely. Yeah, it was, it was very insightful. Yeah, thank you very much, Stuart. Yeah, I thought it was great um, spelling out uh, the health and mental benefits that you get from being a part of a team. And it's something that has opened my eyes a little bit, and I think I might look forward to it when I'm a bit older. And there's some interesting points as well that you touched on. I, th- I thought it was a, a really good point that there's a certain demographic and they're quite quite wealthy, relatively speaking, with lots of disposable income, I think you could well see development of the game and sponsorship and associated products that come with it. I think it'll just evolve naturally. But we'll have to see how it turns out. Definitely. And like I said on the interview, we will be putting a link to the um, WFA site. So anyone that's interested, just click onto our Twitter. Like I said before, VAR at the bar one. And um, it will be there and on our Facebook. So that was Thursday. Saturday, a little bit of history was made as The Rock hosted its first ever walking football international. What an occasion. England were the visitors looking to make it three wins on the bounce, having beaten Italy and Wales recently. Gibraltar, led by Jimmy Perez, were undoubtedly the underdogs, the support of the home crowd went into the game full of confidence. The referee was a busy man on the day, as were Gibraltar's goalkeepers, a really, really tough player, and a valuable lesson for the home side. 11 0, England won in the end. The experience really did tell over two halves, as captain of either side agreed after the game. Uh, Jimmy, they say you learn from defeat and victory. <laughs> What lessons, what lessons do you take from today? They're different, they're totally much better than us. Fitter, the teamwork, it's difficult, they pressure us. We're not accustomed to this kind of football. Obviously, uh, slightly younger than us as well. 
but uh, that's no excuse. They are much better than us. And at the end of the day, they move the ball quicker. We tend when on the first half we played better. We made a few silly mistakes, a few silly goals. And at the end of the day, we expected this really, you know, because obviously they're much better. They've got a bigger pool to select players. We've only got 20 players in Gibraltar, so it's a learning curve for us. And we cannot play any worse. We'll play better next time, I think. But I think they obviously they're much better than us. It's a different class. So now, moving on to the quiz, the final part of the, the episode. What we, what's the scores with everyone? I keep forgetting. I know that I'm last. It's 8-5-2. 8-5-2, Jesus. Shall we just stop stop the pod now and just put me out of my misery? (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so as I'm being presenter, I'm doing the questions. So 15 questions, lads, tonight. If you could uh, shout out your name as well before answering, so then I know who's first on this one. No, I'm joking. <laughs> I'm joking. Don't worry. This is the university challenge. <laughs> right then. So, question one: Which England player swapped shirts with Maradona after the controversial quarter-final defeat to Argentina in the '86 World Cup? Hodges. And you're one nil up. Well done. I've got you to thank for that, Chris. You mentioned it in the text the other day. <laughs> Come on. Shh. We're meant to keep that quiet. Did you tell okay. me the other one? This next question is uh, Who am I? One, okay? Oh, I hate these. Okay, so, Dan, you should get a point then. Okay, I made my international debut for Brazil in 1993 and scored in the game. I played in two World Cup finals and my pro career we play pardon? Uh, no. And my club career saw me play in Brazil, Italy, Angola, Spain, Greece and Azerbaijan. Berto Carlos? Uh, no. Danielson? No. Um, Romario. Uh, no. Uh, Dan, Dan was close with Ronaldo. What were the countries he played in again? Yeah, sure, no problem. It was Brazil, Italy, Angola, Spain, Greece, and Uzbekistan. This guy liked to take a dive when someone passed him the ball on the corner flag. Rivaldo. Rivaldo. Oh, Dan's got there. Right and Dan. That's why I had to check because I didn't know whether you said Ronaldo or Rivaldo. <laughs> <laughs> um, number three, which team did Harrogate beat in the National League playoff final last season? County. Well done. 2 1. Well. Who became Juventus manager this summer? Uh, Pirlo. Well done. We won. Which club did Erlen Harlem play before moving to Dortmund? Salzburg. Correct. Well done, Dan. Well done. Right then, this is a sort of, um, you know, the guess how many and see if you can go more, not a head-to-head, but it's sort of a similar type thing. So, in the last five seasons, 
there have actually been 15 teams relegated from the Premier League. Can you name them all? Or how many can you name? So I'm going to start with Ant. What's your bid? Last five seasons, did you say? Five seasons, yeah. So this is from 15, 16 onwards. Uh, I'll start at five. Okay, five. Dan? Six. Okay. Seven. Okay. Can you go eight, do you think, Dan? Yeah, eight. Can you go nine, Ant? Yeah, why not? Can you go ten, Dan? Always thinking. (laughs) Yeah. So that's go ten, that's two thirds of the amount. What about you then? And eleven? Can you squeeze eleven out there? Give it a go. Okay. Can you go 12, Dan? I'm going to let Ant have a go. Oh. Okay. So you've got 11 then. So 11 out of 15, please, Ant. When you're ready, mate. Uh, Bournemouth. Uh, yeah. Um, Watford. Uh, yeah. Norwich. Uh, yeah. Um... Swansea. Oh, uh, yes. What's that, four? It is, yeah. Um, Fulham. So, Fulham, that's halfway there, mate. You're on to five. That's your fifth. Huddersfield. You said Huddersfield, yeah. That's six. Um, Stoke. Yeah, that's your seventh. Another three more to get, mate. West Brom, have I said West Brom yet? No, not yet. And that's your eighth. What's my target? Two more. Ten. Um, Cardiff. Yeah, that's nine. One more. Middlesbrough. Middlesbrough? You sure? Yeah. Full house, well done, mate. I don't know. Well, well, I'll give you all 15 anyway, guys. So it's Villa, Newcastle, Norwich, Sunderland, Middlesbrough Hall, West Brom, Stoke, Swansea, Huddersfield, Fulham, Cardiff, Watford and Bournemouth. Right then, so this is our famous uh, guess who the player is. I'll give you the clubs. Okay, so we've got Rennes, Bordeaux, Arsenal, Lyon, Rennes again, Marseille, Metz and Nantes. It'd probably be best, obviously, to look at the whole Arsenal-Lyon, maybe. Grimondi? Uh, no, it was sort of in that era, though. Vieira? Pardon? Vieira? No, no, not Vieira, is it? No, not not Patrick. No. no. I'll give you the. I'll give you his position where he played. He was a striker, winger slash striker. Scored a lot of very important goals for. I'll give you his nationality as well: France and um, Arsenal. 
Will Todd. You've gone Will Todd, and the answer is Will Todd. Well done. Fair enough. I wouldn't even have thought of Will Todd. No, the, the unknown player, isn't he, for Arsenal? Okay, so exactly the same thing. So it's Sparta Prague, Vitesse, Swansea, Man City, Stoke on loan, Swansea, Al Rabi. Pardon? Bonnie. Correct. Well done. Which one gave it away? Uh, the Swansea, going back on loan again. <laughs> okay, wicked. So this is like head to head. So I'm going to give you. So what you need to do is give me the first 11 for Man United's team against Ajax in the 2017 Europa League final. Oh I'm going word. to give the first player to Dan to see if he, he can name starting lineup. David De Gea. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so, so um, one player to. Oh God! Um... This is a Mourinho team. Remember. Um, what year are we in? Twenty seventeen. Twenty seventeen. Yeah, the two 0 win against Ajax. Uh, oh God! I can't even think of a Man United player. Rashford. Yeah. Well done. Um... Okay, so it was the team was the starting eleven was Romeo, Valencia, Smalling, Blind, Darmian, Herrera, Mata, Flamini, Pogba, Hendrik, Mkhitaryan, and Rashford. Scores at the moment are six three. Okay, question ten: Which team beat Colombia six one in a recent World Cup qualifier? Ponda? Ecuador. Correct. Well done. Okay, so this is a um, guess how how many you can get. So, Dion Dublin played for seven teams. Can you name them? What's your bid? And to go first. Four. Four? Can you go five? Five, Dan, sorry. Yeah, five. Yeah. Go on, Dan. Okay, five. Coventry? Yeah. Aston Villa? Uh, yeah. Cambridge United? Yeah, good shout. Man United? Yeah, one more. Leicester City? Correct, well done. So you could have had Norwich, Cambridge, Man United, Coventry, Villa, Leicester or Celtic. Right then, so we've got six five going on here, guys. Okay, now, <laughs> this one might be a bit of an interesting one, so I do apologise <laughs> for this question. <laughs> okay, so, instead of the Ballador, they have decided to name 28 players for the player of the century. So that's from 2001 to 2020. So... What I'm going to ask you guys to do is to go one player each until obviously the one who gets it wrong loses. So, Dan, do you want to go first? So, player of the century. Which century? Uh, century. From from 2001 to 2020. 
Okay, so we're not including any players before 20... It's, before 20, it's from 2001 to 2020. Sorry, okay. That's uh, not a century. Pardon, sorry, mate? That's not a century. Well, that's what they're calling it. <laughs> uh, Messi, uh, funny enough, that's on the list. <laughs> uh, Ronaldo, Cristiano Ronaldo. Uh, yeah, that's also on the list. Uh, Zlatan Ibrahimovic. Zlatan is on the list, yeah. Um, Totti. Francesco Totti. On the list, well done. Good job. Kaka. Kaka. Yes, he's on the list. <laughs> okay, um, Luka Modric. On the list, yeah. Got six out of the 28. Well done, guys. <laughs> we'll be all night. <laughs> oh, we are going to be here all night. <laughs> Go on, Dan. I'll give you a couple more seconds, mate. Uh... Ronaldinho. Yeah. Uh, Lewandowski. Yeah. Uh, Gianluigi Buffon. John Buffon. He's on the list. Steven Gerrard. Yeah, he's on the list. Gambled on that one. <laughs> yeah, no, perfectly fine with that one. Thierry Henry. Thierry Henry. No. Can you name one to get the point? Neymar. He's on the list. Well done. I'll just quickly name, go through them. Pirlo, Iniesta, Shevchenko, Robin, Cristiano Ronaldo, Beckham, Cannavaro, Totti, Lampard, Buffon, Casillas, Kaka and Pape. Messi, Modric, Figo, and, um, Neuar, Salah, um, Neymar, Philip Lahm, Legomarski, Ronaldinho, Ronaldo, which no one said, Ramos, Gerard, Xavi, Zidane, and Satan. How is Henri not on that list? I feel sorry. I don't, I don't understand that. That's why I had to double check. <laughs> <laughs> was I, why is he not on it? I thought anyway, maybe it was like beyond his time, but it wasn't, was it? He was in, <laughs> in his prime in 2000, in, in that era. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I don't believe okay. it. So, <laughs> so the scores at the moment are Ant on seven, Dan on five. And we've got three questions left. Oh. And it's Dan to start first with the bidding on this one. So, Di Canio played for ten, for nine teams, sorry. Can you name them? Paolo. What, yes or no? <laughs> <laughs> Which, how many can you name? Uh, I'll start with four. Who's done four? Can go five. Yeah, why not? No, I go six. Oh, okay. fucker. You go seven out of nine. You're going to leave it to Dan. I'll try seven. Can you go eight out of the nine, Dan? Or are you going to give it to... to, to it's seven, five. Seven, five, Dan. 
seven five. That's the problem. Yeah, good to go eight. Go eight. No, I can't. No. I can't. Okay. Up to you then, and we know what you're like with these ones. Okay. Uh, Charlton. No, any joking? Yeah. West Ham. Uh, yeah. Sheffield Wednesday. Yeah. Um, they're, they're the ones I definitely knew. Um, <laughs> Lazio. Uh, yes, well done. What's that, four? It is, yeah. Celtic. Yeah, that's five. Juventus. Come on, Juventus. Let's have a look. Wow, good shout. One more. Like two teams in my head, I know which, whichever one I say is going to be wrong. Um, Milan. So you got Milan, yeah, for the game. What was your other team by any chance? Napoli. Well, if you said either one of them, you would have got a point. So well done. <laughs> <laughs> well played. So it was Lazio, Juventus, Napoli, Milan, Celtic, Sheffield Wednesday, West Ham, Charlton. And Cisco Roma. If anyone got Cisco Roma, then I'll give you the money myself. And then he said Roma. Well, that counted. <laughs> no. <laughs> Did you mean Inter Milan or AC Milan? Doesn't matter. I said Napoli as well. <laughs> no, I meant I meant AC Milan. <laughs> okay, then lads. So next one is nearest nearest um, to the right um, amount wins. So Maradona played for Napoli. 188 times. How many goals did he score? I'll give it to Dan first. You... I'll go with 60. You're going 60? What are you going with, Van? Uh, 71. The answer was 81 goals. So, Van, again? Final question for tonight's quiz. Which club has these guys managed? Okay, so it's Paul Pesky Salido, Gary Rarrett, Jimmy Floyd Hatbank. What do you say? Dan? Birmingham? Uh, no. Oh, who is it? Paul Pesky Salido. Uh, see, I can't even say it. <laughs> Paul Pesky Yeah. Gary Rarrett, Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank. Northampton. You're, both, you're, you're very close, both of you, with it. Burton. It's not. Yeah, well done. I was going to add on Nigel Clough, but I thought it would make it too easy if I said that. <laughs> yeah. I managed about three times. So, at the end of that, it's 10 points to Ant, five to Dan. So now it's 8-6-2. Eight, eight, right then, guys. So that's the, the last bit of uh, 2020 for our pod so we've got a nice break until the new year anything you want to say to our listeners before we leave yeah I hope you have a have a good rest over the holiday period watch lots of football catch up in the new year have, have, have a great Christmas and thanks for supporting yeah. us this year listening to our phones every, every couple of weeks yeah yeah, so everyone have a great Christmas and a great New Year. And again, thanks a lot, Stu Lambsworthy, for the interview. And uh, we'll be seeing you all in 2021.
Podcast Network.